Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. My guest today is Malcolm Gladwell, who is the author of, among many others, The Tipping Point, Blink, Goliath. Uh, he is a great, great, great journalist. And he also has a new and fantastic podcast called Revisionist History, where he's been looking at things that we think we know about and, and, and taking them from a very different angle. It is a fantastic, fantastic podcast. If you're not listening to it, you should be. Uh, and I was excited that we were able to talk today. We got very deep around journalism, around our approaches to it, around the ways in which it can function as a guild and an industry and how that, I think, is at certain points made Gladwell feel a little bit outside of it. He talks about a lot about his process, about when he gets concerned because maybe he feels he is sitting a little bit too much in the mainstream. We talked about why he thinks the internet is sort of bullshit right now and why he thinks that in 30 or 40 years we will we will look back on this as a very strange technology. We talk a lot about folks who he has learned from and what he has learned from them about his theories of education. This goes in a lot of fun, interesting directions. Um, I did not expect to learn, for instance, that when he was a high schooler in Canada, he started a zine and tried to emulate William F. Buckley and write like William F. Buckley and bring the Buckley spirit to his home country. So we get deep in a lot of different directions. It's a very fun episode, left me certainly with a lot to think about. And I think it will do the same for you. As always, before we get into it, please rate this podcast on iTunes. Please share it with your friends on Twitter, on email, on Facebook, wherever fine podcasts are shared. Please listen to my other podcast, The Weeds, which Malcolm Godwell says a lot of very kind things about in here. So if you don't believe me that it is good, maybe you will believe him. And finally, please keep sending along your suggestions for folks who should be on the show, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. And so without further ado, here's Malcolm. Hi, Ezra. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. You know, this is very exciting for me. You know why? Why? Because I am the world's biggest Weeds fan. I am happy to hear that. That's exciting for me. I love the weeds. It's like uh, it's my. I've just I I promote it whenever I can. I tell all my friends to listen to the to listen to the weeds. This is very exciting. That's wonderful. I have one. Uh -huh. I have one complaint though. Please. You always not uh, when I say you, I mean collectively the three sure. of you make fun of the fact that people are listening to the weeds, or you make fun of the weeds. Yes. You can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you can't diss me for listening to the weeds. <laughs> I, I, I need to stop calling you a lame, uh, yeah, like, lame and wasting your time. 
<laughs> yeah, you, every every show, somebody takes a shot at the weeds. I've never seen this before. <laughs> it speaks to a deep self-loathing. It, it does. It has to stop. Fair enough. All right. Well, I will I will relay that back. It's funny. For a long time when I was running Wonk Blog, we would sort of oscillate between having the public face of this stuff is amazing and it's super interesting and then also doing a certain amount of self-deprecating if you're a really boring person who enjoys watching graphs and at a point we we just decided like no more of the second part we we had to yeah. we had we had to give up that affectation yeah yeah well because it's not it's not boring right it's actually super interesting that's the whole point of the weeds is that you make it super interesting so anyway that's great that. though i am i am very excited you're listening that's wonderful to hear also where in canada is sarah cliff from Shoo. That's a great question. <laughs> I don't know it offhand. I just like to know where my fellow Canadians are. Your fellow Canadian health reporters. Yes, exactly. I've always enjoyed occasionally going back into the old Malcolm Gladwell health reporting archives at the Washington Post. <laughs> yes. We amused ourselves back then. It was a more amusing time. I actually thought, speaking of the Washington Post, that we'd begin there, if that's cool. Okay. Yeah. I don't know much about that period in your career, and I've always been been fascinated by it. We even covered some of the same issues there around healthcare. How did you end up at the Washington Post? Largely, I think through an accident, I was uh, roommates with Jacob Weisberg, now the head of the Slate Group, and Jacob was an, it was interning at the New Republic, where at the time Mickey Kaus was working, and I Mickey used to come to our house for parties. And he got offered a job at the Washington Post, and he didn't want it. But he said, well, you should really hire this guy Gladwell at the time. And at the time, I wasn't even a journalist. I mean, I was just kind of like, and I have no idea how, but I somehow got in the system. I mean, I didn't get that job, but I was just entered into their HR database. And eventually, my name came up, and I went there and waved my fingers in the air. And that was at a time, I started there in 1987, when the Washington Post was so massively profitable that they were hiring everyone. That's, I think, the best explanation. <laughs> so I, I got so I was supremely lucky on a number of levels, and I started on the business staff. I had never written a newspaper story in my life when I started at the Washington Post. What were you doing that had led Mickey to think you'd be a good fit there? I was occasionally writing freelance stories for the New Republic, uh -huh. uh, and I had previously written some freelance stories for the American Spectator. So I was a freelancer uh, in D.C., but I was working at some, I had a day job at a think tank and was writing on the side basically for money since I was making $14,000 a year. And I was going to go to business school. I had no intention of becoming a journalist. And then this Washington Post thing fell on my lap. Um, it's very exciting. You, you can tell me if I'm wrong. I have a vague memory that there is some magic around this house that you shared with Jacob Weisberg, that a bunch of other journalists who are now very well known either lived there or passed through there. Am I, am I making this up? There was, well, Jeff Rosen, who's now a law professor at somewhere in, I think, Georgetown or AU. There, it, there wasn't some kind of star-studded... But there were a lot of interesting people who passed through, but I don't know whether there was... I think this might be another house. Jacob subsequently had another house, which really was full of star-studded people. Atul Gawande and all those kinds of people seemed to pass through that house, but not ours. Ours was 
was one step was one step below uh, <laughs> that later famous one. How did you end up in 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 DC rooming with Weisberg at the first place? I got a job out of college, also by accident, at the American Spectator and a magazine that I had neither heard of nor read. But a friend of mine, I needed a job, and a friend of mine read it and said, you should apply. They're looking for an assistant managing editor. And I since I didn't know anything about it, I I couldn't really write a proper job application. And so the, the application, the main question was, why do you want to work at the American Spectator? And of course, I had no idea. So I simply wrote, doesn't everyone want to work at the American Spectator? <laughs> and and I, got, I ended up getting the job, which is quite miraculous. And then that only lasted a few months. I got fired. And then I, rather than go home to Canada, I then just went to Washington, D.C. I was an, an illegal immigrant, and I went to Washington, D.C., and I was seeking my fortune. And I ended up in this group house that had an empty room, and we advertised, and Jacob answered the ad. Why and, did you get uh, fired I, at the American Spectator? I had an incredible difficulty waking up. <laughs> uh, on time. I had just been in college and I had got into this habit of going to bed at four in the morning and waking up at noon. And I just couldn't make the transition to nine to five. I, it was as simple as that. There was no, I'd like to say there was some massive ideological dispute, but it was, it was simply that I couldn't handle the hours. Do you keep, do you keep those kinds of night owl hours now? No, I don't. I, no, I, I'm normal now. But I had I didn't go to class in college, and so what that meant was I adopted a radically you know a kind of non class based schedule. So that's how I was free to do that. And I used to go running at three in the morning in Toronto, which is a magical time to go running. And so it was really that was the kind of impetus for it. It seems that even if you had not been incredibly purposeful around journalism, that you knew that that's what you wanted to do. Yeah. Well, no, because I never, at no time, I always did it, but thought never thought it was going to be a profession. I thought it was something you did on the side. And I wanted to go to business school, as I said, and kept applying and just never followed through until finally I gave up and realized I should stick it out in journalism. But I had a zine in back when, if you couldn't, I don't even know. I think you're even too young. For, are you too young for zines? No, I, I, know, I know about <laughs> zines, but I know about them more in an abstract way. I am oh, I, I am the generation right after zines that emerges into blocks. Yeah, I had a zine with... Do you want to say uh, what a zine is for, for those? A it, zine it, is as shocking of, as it is, some of our listeners are even younger than even me. Younger. A zine is a homemade magazine. It's what you did if you lived in a little small town and you had some kind of pretensions to cultural importance. Um, you made your own magazine and you, you, know, you ran it off on a Xerox machine and you, you distributed it to your friends. You know, lots of people had zines in the 70s and 80s. I had a zine called Ad Hominem, a journal of slander and critical opinion. <laughs> and I did it with two people, my two best friends in high school, one of whom is now an opinion editor for the New York Times, and the other of whom is a history professor at Harvard University. These are my two in my little tiny, weird Bible Belt town in Elmira, Ontario. Those are my two best friends. And we did the zine together and we wrote opinion pieces. And the rule was you had to attack someone personally. <laughs> uh, that's why it was called ad hominem. And that's why these are the my... forerunners to blogs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. My column was called The Moral Pejorative. And it was, I would invite people to write things under the, under the understanding that I would then denounce them in, my, in the moral pejorative. 
we put out, I think, six or seven episodes that were funded by the older brother of my friend Terry. Um, it was great fun. So who are you attacking as a high school? Are you attacking Canadian politicians? Are you attacking your teachers? Who, who is the target no, of no. Ad Hominem? It was on a very high level. So this is 70s Canada, which is the kind of high watermark of Canadian left-wing dominance. And so the only way for us to rebel was to be conservative. So we were all obsessed with William F. Buckley. We wanted to be William F. Buckley. And so what we were doing is we were imagining if William F. Buckley was a 15-year-old Canadian living in rural Ontario and had a zine, what would he say? And that's what basically what we were doing. We we're channeling. We had collected every, me and Terry had gone to the used bookstores of Toronto and collected every William F. Buckley collection of columns secondhand and read them all, essentially memorized them. And we were attempting to, to reproduce him for our little tiny audience. So that was, we would write about, you know, El Salvador or, you know, what was wrong with the Trudeau government or, you know, like whatever the big issues <laughs> of the day were. Well, that's what we were tackling. So this is super interesting to me because it actually gets at something that, that I, I wanted to, to talk with you about. I, I'm always interested in which direction people came to journalism from. I know some folks who came because they love the craft of writing, the, the getting a perfect sentence down on paper or down on digital uh, ink, I guess, is a true passion. And I know some people who love the craft of reporting. And then there, there are folks who often who ended up in these sort of policy magazines like the American Spectator or as I did, the American Prospect, who were interested in arguing and in ideas and in oftentimes pushing a set of ideas or policies and almost saw journalism as a kind of activism. And, and it sounds to me that you at least begin in that, that, that last group. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. We, yes, very much, I think. The three of us, the, these friends of Terry, Bruce, and I in high school, we were really mischief makers. So that was our primary motivation. We engaged in a whole series of actions designed to kind of gently subvert the school, of which one of them was ad hominem. But we did other things as well. It was all part of a kind of sustained campaign of mischief. We marched on City Hall, for example. We, we got Protesting buses. what? Well, our principal, we had this principal who we, he was a lovely, sweet man called uh, Roger Milliken, who we all liked. He was a kind of Beautifully bland and boring and ordinary, but a wonderful principal, but nothing. He wasn't this charismatic, beloved figure. He was a kind of like, but they transferred him. And we decided this was a spectacular opportunity to march on City Hall. So we got to protest his transfer. We arranged for the school buses at the school to transport about three or 400 students, 30 miles to the county seat. And we marched half a mile down the main street of Kitchener, Ontario, all carrying huge signs. I remember, to this day, I have this picture up on my wall, of me, Terry, and Bruce holding a big sign which said, hell no, Milliken won't go. <laughs> which, which, <laughs> and then we had also, and we were marching against the chairman of the Board of Ed, whose name was Wollstonecroft, and we had just read King Lear, I think. And so another one of the signs said, Wollstonecroft, bloody sceptered tyrant. <laughs> <laughs> but it was in that spirit. I mean, it was all just mischief making. I mean, it was like, we liked Milliken, but 
we liked the opportunity to like him more than we liked him. Do you know what I'm saying? It was yeah. just like kind of a kind of elaborate, and we did many of these things in high school. But of course, because it's Canada, this is something that I think Americans don't quite get about Canada. Everyone was complicit, so there was no opposition. No one got upset or in trouble or. If you think about it, we took 300 students out of high school one afternoon, transported them 30 miles and had them march on City Hall, and not a, there was not a single consequence to our action. Not a single one. Everyone was fine with it. The teachers thought it was hilarious. Milliken was like vastly amused, even though he'd never said anything. The chairman of the Board of Education. I mean, we, we stood with a megaphone under the... Board of Education offices, and she, with you know three hundred kids gathered around, and Bruce gave this extraordinarily absurd, over the top speech, climaxing with, "You can run, Wollstonecraft, but you can't hide." <laughs> so it was like that kind of thing, and no one cared because it's Canada, and what the whole sort of ethos was, very permissive in the best way. You know, I don't, can you? I can't imagine that that would be possible in. Uh, Westchester County in 2016 at some high school, right? That people would flip out, but it was that was what Canada was like. I'd actually love to hear your broader reflections on this. There is a cut on the U.S.-Canada difference that I think you hear a bunch, which is basically Canadians are polite, they're cheerful, they're pleasant, and it's basically saying that the difference between America and Canada is a gentle consensus reigns in Canada, whereas Americans are a little bit more burrish, a little bit more fractious. What do you think is the cultural differences between America and Canada that that maybe people don't notice? Uh, It's a really, really interesting question, because I think you're right. There's something quite fundamental that separates the two cultures. One is the thing that I was just talking about, but on a broader level, it is a, a disinclination to escalate social conflict. It's not that there isn't social conflict. It's that like in this country, I feel like every opportunity, there is no opportunity for conflict that is missed. You see it, you seize on it, and you turn up the volume. Whereas at least the Canada of my youth was the opposite. You found conflicts and you found a way to push them aside. So there's, if you think about like, that thing I just described of taking 300 kids out of school one afternoon, people looked at that and said, you know, that's it's kind of great that the kids like their principal a lot. We could make a big deal out of this, and, but what would be the point? So it was one afternoon. They missed the school. You know, they missed school for an afternoon. They all came home safely. You know, that's sort of like, why would we jump at the opportunity to turn this into something bigger? So there's that. And there's also, though... And I tell a story about my brother, not in a way to lionize my brother, because I actually think this has less to do with my brother than it has to do with Canada. But my brother is an elementary school principal, and he was the principal of a little school out in a very, very religious rural area near where we grew up. And it was the most well-behaved school of all time. Basically, no one ever acted out. It was the most kind of charming, docile happy parents kind of place. And he asked for a transfer to the most troubled school in the district because he was getting bored and he felt he was wasting his time. And then I said, well, that's unusual. He goes, well, actually, no. You know, and then he said, most, a lot of the best teachers wanted to be transferred with me because they felt they were wasting their time as well. 
And they said, well, you know, because people, the best teachers always like to go. He said this as a, if it was a matter of fact. The best teachers always like to teach at the toughest schools. Why would, you know, why would he, like, and he looked at me like I was some kind of idiot for thinking otherwise. I just think that the, in that profession, and maybe it's broader than that, but in his profession, that's how they define their value. And it goes without saying that you don't want to, if you were going to do something in your career, you'd want to do it at the, start at the bottom, not at the top. That's really Canadian somehow. I, you know, I'm sure it happens in America as well, but just the idea that the profession is stamped with that attitude um, is a kind of something that strikes me as very, very typical. Why in the end did you settle, it seems, semi-permanently in the U.S.? Well, I came, I mean, I was obsessed with America growing up. From the beginnings of when I could read, I read American magazines, Time, Life, got them every week. I read them literally cover to cover. I remember going into the library as a teenager and discovering the New York Review of Books. I mean, I'd never been to New York, let alone a major city in the United States, and being completely blown away. It just struck me as the place where all of this, there was all this intellectual excitement. And that's what I, I mean, I understand I grew up in a, in a farming town where, um, in the country where nothing, I was bored my entire childhood. <laughs> so I was kind of desperate for some kind of, you know, excitement, anything, drama, conflict. I was literally bored from the age of six to to the age of 16. I grew up in a suburb in Irvine, California, and Irvine is one of the first master-planned suburbs in America. So, I mean, everything was perfectly laid out and decades of its growth were planned from the very beginning. And I would describe it very much the way you just did, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. boring. It's calm. It was one of the safest cities in the U.S. And then I've wondered, as I've gotten a bit older... If I talk to my friends who grew up in more objectively exciting circumstances, my friends who maybe mm -hmm. grew up in New York or in L.A., would they not describe childhood and high school as a time when they were a bit bored? Is that a, a function of the uh, child's yeah. experience where there are things you want to do, but you just don't have the autonomy and the agency to do them? Or is it really something that is about the specific geographical limits in which you in, in which you grew up because I, I just don't think I know anybody who doesn't who won't on some level describe that period as a time when they were often bored yeah I think there's something to that I would only say <clears throat> in comparison to friends of mine who grew up in cities I did a lot less stuff growing up you know every summer I basically would work in the garden in the morning and ride my bicycle and read books in the afternoon. And I did that every day of the summer. I didn't go anywhere. We would travel to other countries once for, you know, a week a year, maybe a week every other year. But, you know, we weren't people who went out. I had two friends who I couldn't visit because they were, one of them lived three, four miles away. And I, how was it going to, you know, or I was, I could bike there, I suppose. But, you know, we were out in the middle of the countryside so I, I just feel it was maybe all childhoods are boring, but I feel like I, I my, mine was <laughs> boring with an asterisk. It was like super boring. Um, but again, that may, may, maybe, I don't know. That's a really good question. I, I have no, um, 
You know, I, I haven't done a controlled comparison of my boringness with the boringness of others. Where do you come down on the argument that feels to me that it has become very fashionable to make in the age of smartphones and the internet, although possibly it was always fashionable to make, that we are depriving ourselves, our children of boredom, that there is something deeply enriching about the experience of being bored. And in this age, when you can immediately check Twitter, when you can always be looking at Snapchat, that kids and adults alike are losing some essential period of reflection or quiet mind that is going to ultimately stunt their creativity or hurt their attention span or somehow lead to a, an impoverished society or existence in the future. I actually agree wholeheartedly with that. My mother would always say to me when I said to her I was bored, she would always say, good getting at that very reason. And I have found as an adult that I have had to defend my periods of extended reflection, that it's one of the reasons I'm a runner. And when I run, I do not put things in my ears because the idea of getting an hour a day of solitude and reflection is hugely important. It's particularly if you're in the business that we're in, you know, you take in a lot of information you have to have some uh, extended period of time to reflect on it. Here I'm going to sound like an old man, and I'm going to repeat what people say all the time. But periodically there are controversies within the sort of small intellectual journalist world. And my objection almost always to those controversies is that everybody who are – all these people who are purportedly independent-minded intellectuals move in lockstep – it's like none of them have taken the time to reflect on it in their own way. They re they are just simply responding to what a peer has said and saying and joining in. And I, that bothers me. I, I think that sometimes it's important to be different for the sake of being different, just to kind of express your own individuality. The issue upon that this I thought about this uh, most recently was in the response to Jonah Lair's recent book. I've always thought the response to Jonah Lehrer's misdeeds is hysterical. And Do you want to just give a tries... quick overview of the oh, Jonah Lehrer background here? Jonah Lehrer was a very successful science writer who was found to have fabricated some quotes from Bob Dylan in one of his books, and then subsequently found to have committed some other journalistic transgressions. And he kind of, his books were withdrawn. He was fired from The New Yorker. He went into a period of, for two years or three years or so, and then he came back with a new book recently, which was reviewed in the harshest possible manner uh, in the New York Times and then by Jen Senior, Jennifer Senior. And then, and then immediately a whole kind of gaggle of New York writers jumped on the bandwagon and kind of in an act of kind of astonishing collective schadenfreude, sort of cheered on the dismantling of Jonah's attempted comeback. And I don't, you know... Sure, people don't like him. That's fine. What I object to was this kind of unreflexive joining in in the piling on. You know, it's or I guess I guess you don't have to join in the pile on, but the the unreflexive piling on that always troubles me, and that speaks to what we're talking about, which is instead of instantly retweeting some gloating tweet about that book, why not? 
spend a couple of hours thinking about your position and differ in some way from this emerging consensus. Nothing makes me more uncomfortable than the feeling that I am part of a consensus on an issue. That's the most dangerous place to be in, I think, because it suggests that lots of the people, you're part of the unthinking majority. What was so interesting to me about that moment, so Senior's review was unbelievably harsh. I read it and just in a kind of sympathetic human way, just cringed, right? Like imagining what that would be like to to read as you're trying to make your comeback from an experience that had to be profoundly humiliating and and, and shattering. Now, on the one hand, I, I thought reading that Senior has sort of earned her right to this opinion. She read the book. She does this kind of work. If she Mm -hmm. says this book is garbage, I think she is speaking from a place where she's earned that. But what was so fascinating to me about the response to that review, and I'm not saying that I don't join in this kind of thing myself, although I I, I did not in this case, was that the people retweeting it and celebrating that review had not read the book. They didn't, they hadn't earned any opinion here. They didn't know if this book was good. What was going on there was they wanted it to be bad. What the review did was it, there was something they were hoping was going to happen, whether or not they knew they were hoping for it. And that was that this guy who had risen so high, so fast, so quickly, and then fallen sharply, it had been proven that the way in which it felt to people like it had been proven that, yes, there really was something illegitimate about the way in which he lapped so many of his competitors. People wanted the continued narrative of his failure more than they wanted a narrative of of a comeback. And, and that's interesting. Yeah. Usually people, I think, are rooting for a kind of comeback. But in this case, the anger or the resentment had run so deep that mm-hmm. when people were given the excuse to bury the book and bury him, they took it very fast. Yeah. And I was yeah. trying to think no. about afterwards why that was. Well, I, I'm curious if you have a theory on it, because it seemed very brutal. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about Jonah Lehrer that seemed to evoke the most kind of vicious and sanctimonious response from his peers. And I don't un- I don't have a theory. I've never understood it. I don't, I don't understand why. I don't understand why, to give you a contemporaneous counterexample, why the journalistic community uh, rallied in support of Gawker when they were sued by Peter Thiel um, over Gawker's decision to publish a sex tape of a, an encounter between a, you know, a wrestler and his best friend's wife and also Gawker's decision to out people who didn't want to be outed, that, that's the thing we're defending. Whereas the guy that we're jumping all over is the guy who wants to write a, a scholarly book about love. There's a point at which I can no longer make sense of, of the kind of community's choices in who they like and who they don't like. So I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have an explanation. To discuss journalism a little bit anthropologically... It is a community. It is an industry. It has its mores. It has things it likes and things it doesn't like. It has a tone that it respects and a tone that it doesn't respect. And something that I do think is true here, and and I feel this very much about the New York journalistic community in particular, there is a very high premium. And again, I'm I'm speaking impressionistically. There are a million examples of, of everything I'm about to say being wrong. But it feels to me that there is a very high premium in much of the the sort of publishing world placed on snark, 
on a continuous stance of knowingness. Gawker, in many ways, is a distilled version of that. It's often a very cruel version of that. And and in my writing on the the Teal Gawker stuff, I think I come down, I don't like what Teal's doing, but I come down pretty hard on what Gawker did. But Lehrer had his real sins. But I think one reason people were ready and waiting for him to fall is that he acts from a place of earnestness, from a place of, he's, he's a popularizer. He's like willing to enjoy things at a pretty baseline level. And and I've just noticed a bunch of different times that that is a stance that folks in journalism just don't love. And it, it, it comes against a lot of people. I think it comes against you sometimes. It's definitely, I felt it coming against Vox. The People really prefer a stance that begins from a space of superiority isn't the right word, but, but a, an ironic knowing, I think, is the right term for it. And earnestness is a little bit, it's a little bit unpopular. Yeah. I, you know, I wonder sometimes whether these aren't, this, what you're describing isn't a symptom of the falling economic status of journalism. All of this is against a backdrop of essentially economic crisis. When I joined the Washington Post in 1987, a job at a major metropolitan daily in the United States puts you firmly in the upper middle class, firmly in the upper middle class. In fact, papers like the Washington Post, you weren't even in the upper middle class. You could be in the upper class um, working there. You know, they were exceedingly profitable institutions that paid very well and that employed lots of people. That has all gone away. You know, journalism has both become, I'm not saying anything new here, it has become ubiquitous in our society, but it's no longer, there's no money attached the way they used to be. So the question is, what happens to any profession that is losing its economic place, right? How do the members of that profession respond? And I think that what we're seeing are the kind of, these are the kinds of psychological defense mechanisms that people who are in status freefall, economic status freefall, adopt, right? They become very particular about who they want, who they want to let in and let out. They start to kind of fetishize certain moral stances or positions or codes as a way of sort of enforcing the in-group. I feel like that half of 1950s psychology was about what is going on in journalism right now. It is not dissimilar, actually, to the, some of the social mechanisms that are going on in other parts of, of American society that have suffered from this kind of, of economic dislocation. If you know that 50s literature, what is the high-level gloss on it? What are in those moments of transition and those moments of friction, what kinds of responses emerge? I mean, it is this search for when you lose one kind of status, one kind of point of differentiation, you have to replace it with something else. A very, very simple illustration of this is why are pickup trucks so much larger today than they were 25 years ago, right? Have you ever seen a standard Ford pickup truck of 1975? up against a F Ford 150 today, the contemporary Ford pickup is literally twice the size. I mean, I'm making that up. It's not quite twice. But I mean, they dwarfs the old one. These are the same people buying those pickup trucks, doing the same jobs, but now their pickup truck is twice as big. And the answer is, in response to the falling economic status of kind of white working class jobs, people have chosen to assert, each, assert their status in another way. I may not make the kind of money that I 
or have the kind of economic status I had 25 years ago. So I'm now going to compensate by having this truck that's twice as big. Or another version of this would be the observation that was made that Texas accents are far more pronounced today than they were a generation ago. That in response to the influx of outsiders to Texas, people from Texas now speak a kind of more pronounced form of Texan. It's an assertion in in response to their to being feeling besieged, they reassert their identity in this kind of more prominent way. That those were ideas that were sort of played out in in group out group psychology of the fifties and sixties. And I sort of feel like that's what I mean when I say that this is being played out in journalism today. So one thing that I think is really interesting about this kind of conversation, because on the one hand, there's a, a piece of it that that feels true to me. And on the other, I never feel like I know how to test it effectively against the counterfactual. So when you come to D.C. in the, the late 80s, early 90s, there is a very strong culture that is emergent at that moment around particularly the smaller magazines like the New Republic, the Washington Monthly, that crew. There's a very mm-hmm. strong culture of counterintuitivism. And you've been mm-hmm. talking about the little bit here that the worst place to be is with the the standard earnest take. I remember when I came to the American Prospect that we used to talk very seriously about being counter counterintuitive, <laughs> that a lot of what our articles were, were like, no, you've heard, you know, giving money to poor people is bad, but actually it's what you originally yeah. thought it is good. <laughs> and yeah. that that was part of the role we were playing. And, you know, industries, people, groups, they always have their sacred cows. They always have their internal cultures. I mean, I think a lot about the ways in which journalism developed a very mannered formalism in the way articles were written. And it justified that in terms of objectivity. It justified that as this is how journalism is done. But often it seems to me that we actually hadn't thought about it that hard. We had just gotten into a way of writing that showed we were journalists and other people weren't. So I think Mm -hmm. one question there is, how would we know if this was different or worse than it had been at any other point? point. I agree with you that there are ways in which the industry is weaker than it has been at other times. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that it hasn't had a similarly strong culture and in some ways even stronger safeguards against outsiders at other points in its history. So back when you have some kind of shift in the professional status of the journalist in the following way, the generation that joined newspapers from the sort of in the post-war era, up through the decline of the newspapers in the 90s, you went to a newspaper and you were, uh, it was very much a kind of apprenticeship. It was a, a guild in the in the medieval sense, and you were taught the kind of principles of journalism, two sources for everything, talk to both sides, you know, have the lead, blah, blah, blah. And then the if you stepped over the line, the lawyer came and told you you can't say that, right? I mean, there's, all, there's, a whole, there's a whole kind of, I went through this exact thing where the crusty old editor says to me, where did you talk to this guy? And I'd say, I give some ham-fisted excuse not to. And, he, you know, he would say, talk to him or we're not running the story. You know, this whole, everything that you imagined happened. That there was, you know, everything you saw in 1950s movies in, about newspapers, Metropolitan Dailies, was the experience. Like, that's how it was. When that kind of very strong conditioning environment goes away, it has to be replaced by something. And I think what replaces those kinds of 
codes of objectivity and correctness are a sense of codes about that have to do with attitude. And that's sort of getting to your point earlier about the culture of snarkiness and such. You can't have a profession without some kind of organizing identity. And the identity that journalism had through much of the 20th century died with the newspaper. And so the question is, what does what takes its place? And what takes its place is what what you were talking about. That's a super interesting point you just made, though, that we traded a kind of formalism for an attitude. Because if you if you back that out and you're saying, okay, what is one of your incentives as a journalist? Well, one of your incentives is to write stories that your peer group thinks are good. Mm-hmm. And one way you do that, one one thing you could do to protect yourself and your stories was that you followed the rules. You know, you showed you had spoken to everybody. It was written like a newspaper story. You just, you could look at it and it was clearly journalism. We're in a period of much more chaos in terms of what counts as a story. There is just a real profusion of formats. Some things are journalism, some things are not. Some things are a little bit on the bubble. People get criticized for doing work that other people don't get criticized for. I think there's a lot of, I employ a lot of young journalists, and I think there's a lot of anxiety right now among people of what kind of work will they receive backlash for doing? And one way it's more modern to protect yourself from the backlash. I'm not saying this didn't exist in any way in the 80s or 90s. I'm sure it did, but I think it's very salient now is if your opinion is quote unquote correct. If nobody has an incentive to attack your opinion, then the fact that the opinion wasn't based on a super strong foundation of professional protocol is not going to get you in any trouble at all. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I remember so many of my formative memories at the Washington Post were of watching much older and more experienced journalists deal with criticism. And you could deal with criticism by, they always would deal with criticism by referring to the formalism, by saying, you know, if someone called you up and you say, I talked to you or I talked to your people and they told me X, Y, and Z, or I mentioned that in blah, blah, blah. Or Michael Spector, my great friend who's now at The New Yorker, who's my colleague at The Post, used to always say to the person yelling at him on the phone, you seem to have forgotten one thing. I don't work for you, which is the point, right? I'm not partisan in this. I work for an objective institution which reports the news. Don't blame me for not agreeing with you. It's not my job to, right? That was our protective cloak. And now the cloak's gone. Right? And I think you're absolutely right. What? So what do you have left? Well, maybe all you have left is to kind of follow along with the herd and let the herd protect you. It's something that I struggle with a lot here. My pathway into journalism was very accidental. I did not intend to be a journalist. I did not want to be a journalist. I did not have any belief that this would be uh, my career until basically it was. And when I was a blogger, I was part of a backlash to a lot of this formalism. I felt that a lot of the protocols of even-handedness made it very hard to tell the truth. I mean, the the canonical, you know, is the earth round, opinions differ kind of thing. And there was, I think, value to that. I, you know, I came to the Washington Post and, and being there, a lot of my work was somewhat controversial. And, you know, because I did not abide by some of these standards, I had a different approach and, and you know, certainly in my view, a valid one of getting things right. But certainly, you know, now I have a lot of concern that that stuff is going too far, that we were right that 
phrasing your entire piece in this extremely mannered way to defer criticism makes it hard to tell the reader what is really going on. But the upside of, you know, the quote unquote objective journalism, which I really hate that term because I don't think it was objective, but the upside of it was a process that forced you to talk to people on different sides of an issue did help you learn different arguments around mm-hmm. that issue and did help you come to a better conclusion. And that mm-hmm. somehow, you know, and I'm, I'm facing this a lot at Vox when I, when I work with my younger writers, you want to keep what was good about that process and not necessarily recreate the end point. Something we talk a lot about internally was that we don't want a neutral product, but we do want a neutral or an open-minded process. But yeah. once you move away from the product, it becomes easier to hide a more biased process behind that. Yeah. I thought of this, you know, one of the podcast episodes I did was called Food Fight, and it was a comparison of Bowdoin and Vassar's approach to financial aid and sort of made the point that schools that are trying to spend the marginal dollar on financial aid, their lives are made very difficult if their competition chooses not to spend the marginal dollar on financial aid, but chooses to spend it on amenities. And the whole core of that piece was a ranking done in the New York Times, in the Upshot column, that ranked every or every major college in the United States um, on the basis of how generous and open they were to low-income students. So it was an objective ranking that put every college on the same footing. And so my piece was an act of advocacy built on an objective observation And I spent a lot of time before I did that piece making sure that the New York Times index that they came up with was what I thought it was. That is to say, was it actually a fair measure of uh, how open schools are, how generous they are towards low-income students? Having determined that it was, I then felt that I had a solid foundation on which to engage in my active advocacy. And so there's a way in which, even in that instance where... I was not doing a kind of standard by the book, newspaper, talk to both sides kind of piece. It was built on that foundation. It was made possible by somebody who took the time to come up with an unimpeachable way of comparing the records of different colleges, which is all to say that, to sort of back up your point, that none of this works if somewhere in the foundation of these stories there isn't some kind of rock solid objective, old school reporting. Let me take this from a couple different angles because I have very complicated feelings right here and, and they tip. When, when I go into this, I tip on this like abyss of nihilism that I've never quite known how to resolve. So, so we're going to go a bit deep into my psyche. So one, okay. I am certain, not knowing that particular ranking, that there is someone out there who has a valid criticism of it. And even if it's not true for that one, it is true for most of them. I, like you, spend a lot of time working off of academic work or think tank work that is in some ways trying to create a, a level 
playing field. I, I, I've done a lot of comparisons of international health systems, right? Trying to think mm-hmm. about what would it be like if we had single payer or multi-payer or socialized healthcare or not. And, you know, I've looked at a lot of these different ways of ranking systems. The World Health Organization very famously had one that ranked the U.S. 37. And that obviously made people very upset. And, you know, some of them are better than others, but certainly none of them are unimpeachable. And that's before you get into the question of even if the ranking itself is well constructed, how well constructed Mm -hmm. is the underlying data? Because something I've become very sensitized to is often just how bad the data we're working off is. And then while I am developing, hopefully, maybe a scary level of, you could call it humility or fear about the degree to which we know what we think we know, the degree to which the stuff that we are saying, look, it's based on this objective source, be that old school journalism, be that a Harvard study, be that a Brookings study, whatever it might be. Then on the other hand, I've gotten very deep into this research about how we make decisions when those decisions threaten our group identity. This research is very potent around politics where the group identity of I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican or I'm a liberal or I'm a conservative is extremely and increasingly salient to people. And the big lesson of that research is not just that we are very flawed thinkers, that this idea we have that we are reasoning our way to truth is often a elaborate way we deceive ourselves when we are really reasoning our way back into our own group, but that the smarter you are, the better you are at doing this to yourself, that it is actually not the case that more education and more intellectual horsepower protects you from self-deception. In fact, in many ways, you become better at self-deception because you are better at gathering facts and coming up with arguments that support your side. And on the one hand, I, I believe all this to be true. I believe that a lot of the the foundation we're working off of is flawed. And I believe the tool with which we are working atop that foundation is pretty flawed. And on the other hand, what's the alternative? You're just going to be paralyzed and, and never write a thing. And so uh, I often have this a little bit dual psyche as I'm doing this work where on the one hand, I feel and, and, I, and, and possibly, you know, you've experienced this where on the one hand, I think this is the right thing to be doing. I think this is the right thing to be writing. And on the other hand, my baseline view of how all of this work would be perceived by someone who really did have perfect information and really was perfectly objective. I'm sure when people look back at us 50 years from now, 100 years from now, we will have gotten really big things wrong and look very, very, very dumb. And I'm not exactly sure how to manage those two those two beliefs simultaneously without just, you know, leaving and going working at, you know, at a smoothie stand. Well, you, please don't go work at a smoothie stand. Smoothies are delicious. I would say two things. I think that I agree with 98% of what you say. I would only say this, that we can reasonably, I think, make a distinction between those kinds of things that lend themselves to relatively transparent and objective analysis and those that don't. For example, I'm a big track and field fan. I'm obsessed with all of this stuff about doping and which athletes are or are not doping. What I did not realize until I began to read more in this is that the determination of whether an athlete is doping is itself an incredibly subjective process. It's not like a pregnancy test where it's either you know one color or another color. It's actually this thing where 
you have to look at all this data and make a series of judgment calls. And there are legitimate cases where someone can be accused of doping and they didn't dope. So there's a case where, to your point, a huge amount of skepticism is necessary if you're going to discuss the problem, right? And you shouldn't, one needs to, to really look at hard and fast pronouncements in that area with a certain degree of caution. On the other hand, there are problems, questions that are simple enough that I think we can have a certain amount of certainty. So to go back to the question of generosity towards low-income students, there we're just dealing with two factors. You know, we have a definition of, we know the number of students who come from low-income families, and there's maybe there's some uncertainty about that number, but we're, you know, we know we're within... 98% of that correct number. We know the colleges tell us, and we know that their numbers are reasonably accurate, how many of those students they take in. And they also tell us how much of the tuition load they pay for each of those students. I mean, it's not a hard, that one's not hard. Now, you can quarrel with any of those, with using those three numbers as your definitive answer as to the generosity of a college in treating low-income students, fine. But I don't think there's much arguing about any of those specific numbers. Once you concede that we're looking at Pell Grant students and we're interested in how many they take and how much of their tuition they pay, it's not hard to know that Bowdoin does a pretty mediocre job and Vassar does a fantastic job and NYU does a job so appalling that they ought to be ashamed of themselves. Even NYU, if we called up the head of NYU right now and we said, you guys do a really shitty job of being generous towards low-income students. There is nothing I believe the president could say to defend himself. It's not arguable. The numbers are, you know... Ha- have you called concoct. him up and asked him that question? I have not, since I didn't choose to focus on NYU, but would love to. I mean, if he's listening... <laughs> <laughs> did, did anybody, while you were doing this, did you talk to anybody who came out poorly on this? who had a response that felt, even if it wasn't persuasive to you, it was compelling from their interests, right? That you you understood how a good person, a good institution was making decisions that ended with them looking terrible on these measures. Well, I did, you know, the episode that just launched includes a long interview with John Hennessy, president of Stanford, in which we get at this very issue. I asked him to justify... Stanford's spending priorities. And I think he does a very poor job of doing it um, because I think they are, they are at root unjustifiable. So yes, in short answer. But I'll also say this, which is an interesting thing about podcasts. And I feel like, and I'm sure you deal with this with the weeds, although I will say I think the weeds does a better job of dealing with this problem than almost any other podcast. And that is that when you're talking, it's really hard to speak intelligently about numbers, right? It's astonishingly difficult to make a sophisticated statistical case on the radio or, you know, on a podcast. You can do it. That's the great. I mean, there's all these things you can do with your voice that you can't do in print. But that's one thing you could do in print you can't do with your voice. And I tried to dig into the numbers more in some of these podcasts that I've been doing on education. And I was, I threw up my hands. I was like, I can't, I can make it an emotional argument. 
I can make a broad kind of thematic argument. I cannot make a statistical argument because it doesn't, you can't use that many numbers in speech and, and expect to have anyone follow you. I was getting confused myself when I was saying it with all the numbers. I just had to take them out. And really, it's interesting. You realize a world in which the principal mode of communication is oral is a very different kind of world in which the principal form of communication is written. Something I hadn't thought about until I did a podcast. I will say the thing about podcasting, and I do not understand this exactly, but one reason it is easier to talk about some of these issues is that in a way that feels similar to me to early blogging, people are a little more generous to the idea that you might be wrong and that might be okay. That might be part of searching mm -hmm. on these issues that something that was fun about early blogging was that it had less authority behind it than uh, newspapers did, than op-ed columns did, than magazines did. And so people would try ideas on for size, even if they weren't really sure they would fit. Um, I know that you're a fan, as I am, of Tyler Cohen and his mm -hmm. blog, Marginal Revolution. And he is a thinker who is interesting precisely because he's willing to, well, not precisely, there's a lot of reasons he's interesting. But one thing that makes him, him great is that he is willing to try on very weird ideas. And, you know, maybe he's only 40% sure about it. Maybe he's only 60% sure about it. Somehow yeah. podcasting, I find that folks are, they get that if you're just talking, that it's okay. You might double back. One thing on the weeds that is fun is that I will often put out an idea and Matt or Sarah will make a counter argument. And I feel pretty often on that show, I'm like, well, okay, I actually see that point. Like, you're right. That was a bad idea. And that mm -hmm. makes it easier to talk about some of these trickier statistical issues because one very hard thing about talking about numbers, either in print or e also using data visualizations, I think we do a very bad job uh, of talking about the limitations of numbers and the ways in which studies might be wrong. There mm -hmm. is a, a very subtle but I feel very powerful incentive towards coherence imposed by most of the formats in which we write. And the push is towards actually having like one point on a study. If a study said, as Roland Fryer's recent one did, that African-American men are not killed at a higher rate by police when they're stopped, then, then that is what – and that's like the main point of the study. Then that is really the main point of the article. And, and even stuff that, that undermines it, you can only sort of gesture at. And I, I find that one reason this format is nice is that you can be a little rambling. It doesn't have to be one point. Mm -hmm. People are, are open to you just making a bunch of points and then at the end – just kind of moving on, not wrapping it in a bow. I think the, the need to wrap things in a bow and impose a coherence that often you're thinking on something doesn't really have is a, a genuine weakness of a lot of our published news-oriented uh, news work right now. Well, this, you know, this is funny because this is something that I've thought about for years as a child of an academic. So my father taught math and he would constantly be going off to conferences. And as a kid, I would always ask myself, why on earth is he going to conferences? What possible value is there for him to go and present a paper when they could just send someone the paper? It's equations, right? Like, isn't it just easier just to read the equation? And I was always very skeptical. I thought, well, you know, my father's going to Istanbul this summer because they all want a vacation in Istanbul. But now I realize that 
to exactly what you're saying, there is a reason why there is so much emphasis in academia on person-to-person oral presentation of arguments, data, what have you. Because when it's presented in oral form, it's so much easier to honor the conditionality of the work, to argue with it, to fix, to backtrack, to amend, to all those things. The minute it's on paper, it has a kind of permanence and authority that maybe it doesn't deserve. And whenever I, I, I often forget to do this, but whenever I read an academic paper, I always try to imagine in my mind the author of the paper presenting it orally. And that helps me to not jump in head over heels with some of the conclusions, to just to imagine their voice when they did came to the conclusions. Because, you know, when you... In every conclusion of an academic paper, you know this, there's always a point where they, where they recognize all of the potential problems with the conclusion. This may not be true because A, B, and C. When you're reading it, you skip over that. You're like, ah, I'm not interested. I want to know what the conclusion is. But if they were presenting it, you know that that actually would be a crucial point in the presentation. Everyone in the room is waiting for you to go through all the reasons why it might not be true because that's, the, that's where the discussion is going to begin, right? So the very thing that is almost of principal importance in the oral presentation is an afterthought when it's on the page. What goes on in the weeds, for example, is I think you are restoring academic research to its appropriate environment, which is in that kind of, in the conditional mode of ordinary speech. But I am I am plugging the weeds. I deserve money for this. <laughs> you do. And I will slip you that hundred we talked about uh, earlier <laughs> after the show. Let me ask you about uh, the the other side of this. I don't know if you saw this recent book by Chuck Klosterman, What If We're Wrong? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he, he does, it's this great book of essays. And it is him trying to imagine what we will have been wrong about in the future, or at least mm-hmm. which of our judgments will seem completely off. And he sort of yeah. goes through this in in music and he goes through it in film and literature and he talks about, you know, how our understanding of gravity might update. I'm curious if there are things that you, you talked a little bit ago with the the college study about something you're pretty sure is not going to change. Are mm-hmm. there things or classes of things that are conventional wisdom now that when you look at it, you think well, that is clearly going to change. That is clearly something that in a hundred years is going to look bad. Huh. Well, I'll toss out two random thoughts. I think there'll be a good deal more skepticism towards institutional medicine. I think that we're going to wake up one day and realize that we fell in the kind of post-war years into this weird infatuation with things that happen in a doctor's office in a hospital at the expense of really prosaic things that enhance health. I feel like academics are already in that moving in that direction, but I feel like the public is going to follow. And you're going to realize that actually exercise in a decent diet gets you 85% of the way home. And much of what you're spending billions of dollars on is just useless. I think the internet, as it is presently configured in 50 years from now or even 25 years from now, is going to seem like a really bizarre experiment gone awry, that the idea of building a system, uh, basically a, a, a platform for every 
fundamental human interaction that is incapable of defending itself is insane. <laughs> I mean, insane. What, like, do you mean, what do you mean defending itself? Well, I mean, okay. Exhibit number one of completely insane public policy argument, Hillary's emails. So people jumping up and down because Hillary broke a rule and used a private server and her BlackBerry for stuff that she should have kept on the State Department server, right? Meanwhile, the State Department server has been hacked so many times, we've lost count. I mean, two years ago, they had to shut down all the servers because there was Russian malware on it they couldn't get rid of. Then there's like Snowden makes off with the entire contents of, you know, every diplomatic cable going back. And then OPM gets hacked every single file of every American who's ever applied for a national security clearance is in the hands of the Chinese. The federal government, the entire uh, cyber apparatus of the federal government is Swiss cheese, right? And yet we're still somehow having an argument about, oh, she might have had something on her BlackBerry. If it's on her BlackBerry, it's a hundred times safer than it would be on the on the State Department server, right? <laughs> like, it, I mean, it was the most surreal. It's the kind of argument that you could only have if you are completely out of touch with the monster that you've created, and the monster is indefensible. It can't defend itself. It's built so that random people in Bulgaria can hack in at the drop of a hat, right? Every major institution in this country has been hacked including institutions who you would have thought their principal mode of one of their number one priorities was to prevent themselves from being hacked. And so it's like, how long can this go on, right? I mean, at a certain point, we're going to say we need a new internet. Like the internet is a, is a, it's a fuck up. I mean, it's like, I, don't, <laughs> I don't understand why no one sees this. Here I have, here I am, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a customer of Citibank. Why doesn't City? Why hasn't Citibank come to me and said, "Malcolm, we are terribly sorry, but there is nothing we can do to defend your finances from being hacked." I'm sorry. So, if you pay us a thousand dollars a year, we'll put you in an entirely new system, which is on which we think reduces your chance of being hacked by ninety percent. Would I pay the grand? Oh yes, I would pay the grand. Why hasn't Citibank done this? Because they're numbskulls. Like the rest of us, they're living with their head in the sand. They literally have their head in the sand. So does the State Department. So does everybody. I don't understand this. I mean, it just, I was at a conference with a bunch of IT guys, IT security guys from major American corporations. We had lunch. It's like me and 15 of these people. We start talking. Turns out that not a single one of them has satellite radio in their car. I was like, Really? Why not? Like They looked at me like I was a blithering idiot. They're like, are you kidding me? That's how they get in, right? That's the point of vulnerability. You got to sound like radio. Your car is like open season for anyone who wants to hack in. I was like, oh, shit. Now you tell me, right? Like, if you're at an IT conference and none of the IT guys have satellite radio, doesn't that signal something? It's like going to a, a, conf- a doctor's conference and discovering not a single one of them uses antibiotics. That would be a wake-up call, wouldn't it? So, I mean, anyway, that, I, I, get, I get hyper about this because I just think this is insanity on every level. But anyway, I think the Internet is going to seem like we're going to look, we're going to say, Jesus, what were we thinking? But you know what's fascinating about that to me? There are a couple of things I want to say on that. But one of the things that I, I like about your Citibank example is that I think almost nobody would pay the $1,000. And the reason I'm pretty sure of that is that the lengths to which people will go 
to not have to ever change a password is extraordinary. And, and, and by the way, I am simply one of these people. I recently did get hacked, actually. There is a group out there that has been just sort of going around and they, they figured out this kind of neat trick. And basically, they wait, as you say, all of these big uh, servers have been hacked. And so they got a bunch of passwords in a dump of hacks of, I think it's LinkedIn, Quora, and Foursquare, if I'm mm-hmm. not wrong. And they hacked all these people and all these big like tech people like Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk and then and then smaller people like me. And what they did was they realized that we had all given access to our Twitter and Facebook pages that we actually probably keep under pretty good lock and key. Like I have two-factor authorization and the whole thing, like very unique passwords and all that. But we had given this access to these sort of throwaway accounts, you know, like I didn't even know I had a Foursquare account anymore. And so somehow they got the password that I had not done two-factor, had not protected heavily into the Foursquare account and then used that to post into my Twitter account. And I mean, it's the most mild way you can be hacked. They just put up a, a little note being like, you've been hacked. You should People should come to our website and buy our security services. So it was yeah. more than anything a reasonable wake-up call. But yeah. one, it was incredibly violating, but also made me realize how many things I have not taken the time to fortify. Uh, and, and, yeah. and then I did, but that I hadn't there. And I think that one of the interesting just points of vulnerability is not that the systems are so easy to hack. It's that we really, really, really somehow dislike the work of making them not mm-hmm. easy to hack, of having hard to remember passwords that are written down on a piece of paper in our house, even when we know better. And then and then something goes wrong and then we feel really stupid for having not done it. But the great vulnerability here doesn't feel to me like it's the internet. It feels to me like it is our discounting of a future in which something terrible happens to us. And to some degree, that actually connects your health example too. In both cases, I kind of agree with what you're saying that the technology on which we are basing our futures is a lot worse than we think it is. But Mm -hmm. one of the reasons it is such a big problem is that it is very hard for us to do the annoying, often shitty stuff now that makes it so we won't need to rely on that technology in the future. Yeah, although not hard to imagine. I agree with all that you said. I will only say about the internet that it was specifically designed to be open. That's the design flaw in retrospect. Um, oh, it should not be designed. It was, you know, everything that we deal with with hacking is not a is not a bug of the internet. It's a feature of the internet, and we have to we have to fundamentally redesign it if we're going to deal ultimately deal with with hacking. But yeah, we are. I mean, people are ludicrously complacent about all of this. It also seems to me that we are pre- we are just a couple of years from the way we interface with all this, feeling very archaic. I'm very much a believer that 10, 15, 20 years, just we are going to have a lot more voice stuff, a lot fewer passwords. That the whole that this space uh, and this moment in how we interface with technology is going to pass through fairly quickly. I agree with that. No, I mean, biometrics, I mean, alone. I mean, I, when I enter the con- country, I look in, they do a retinal scan. I don't understand why that retinal scan isn't everywhere. I mean, if the federal government has got retinal scans at the border, I mean, <laughs> then, not, you know, I don't understand why Chase doesn't have a ret- retinal scan when I, you know, or Citibank. To the other point about health, I mean, this is this is a complete tangent, but this understanding that 85% of the 
problem is about diet and exercise. When that's taken seriously, that means we'll also, we'll look back on the notion that kids are continuously in school, in a classroom from, you know, eight to four or what have you, as being absurd. 15, 20 years from now, you, you will have situations where kids are doing two hours a day of physical exercise. That could be, a, I could be totally making that up, but I could see that as a legitimate outcome of people starting to understand much better about what are the optimal learning situations and what is best for an individual's welfare. Do you think it is possible to have learning situations that individualize more? I mean, I, I, I think about this a fair bit. So I did terribly in school. And, and I mean, not the kind where I was like, oh, I got a 3.5, but like really like failed classes constantly, barely got into college. It was, it was a bad scene. And in retrospect, something I've learned about myself as an adult and just did not recognize at the time is that I am in some pretty fundamental way deficient at listening to someone lecture. It is not a way even now I can learn. Like I just do not as a journalist call into teleconference calls because I, I cannot like something in my brain shorts and I just zone out immediately. And on the one hand, you know, I think that we have, we have an understanding that people's learning styles are dramatically different, that is so far advanced compared to how many ways we let kids learn that it just mm -hmm. seems bizarre. We can look at this and say, we know better. And on the other hand, it's a big system. You've got to educate a lot of kids. You've got to be worrying oftentimes about the kids who are worst off. And, you know, I wonder if we're if we ever would have the ability to be significantly more differentiated in, in order to, to to create models more like the one you're talking about. Even modest steps to address basically heterogeneity in learning styles can go a long way. So will we ever have individualized instruction? By the way, I'm not even sure that's a good idea. I think that to a certain extent, it's not a bad idea to force people who learn one way to learn another way because it's you're just adding another arrow in their quiver. But I do think some relatively crude steps. So it's not clear to me at all that, particularly in elementary and middle school, that boys and girls belong in the same classroom. I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. An, an eight-year-old boy and an eight-year-old girl are so f profoundly biologically distinct creatures. It's absurd to, to expect, to think that you can you can satisfy both simultaneously. So, I mean, there's that. I mean, even, I just think even moving to back to single-sex education um, until well into high school would go a long way. Even, you know, really simple things like starting school later for teenagers would go a long way. That a lot of what we now perceive as individual differences in learning styles may simply be, at least on teenagers, manifestations of the fact they don't get enough sleep. I mean, I think lack of sleep probably accentuates this kind of heterogeneity. You know, we may just, I think we'll get smarter about, or we, I hope we get smarter about creating conditions that are a bit more forgiving of these differences. But, and I would point out that with you, the system actually, you know, it does work in the end. You have a non-traditional entry point, but you actually do end up, the system does what it's supposed to do, which is it educated you and found a, home for you in the world that you like. So it was, isn't it fair to say that your childhood is, although it is on an unconventional one, it's a successful trajectory? I think that's probably right. Although the, the one place I'd be careful about that is that I had 
a lot of privileges and second chances that other kids wouldn't get. I got into college on SATs, just flat. Otherwise, I don't get into college. And, you know, mm. my father, like yours, is a mathematician at a university. And we understood how the SATs worked, right? I was in a prep class. I knew that if I scored above a certain level, I triggered, you know, University of California eligibility. So there are just places where, it, it, it yeah. as you say, it worked out for me. But I would be careful about how much I would generalize that you experience. You need to be in the forgiving educational environment of Canada. We would have <laughs> happily taken you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to be fair, I mean, there is the community college world. And so, so there are, there are, def, there are definite pathways and, and pathways that would have worked even if things had gone a bit worse. Let me move to something that I wanted to, to try out with you because you've worked alongside or reported on a lot of people I'm very fascinated by. And, and if you're open to experimenting with this, I'd like to ask you what you learned from a couple of them. Sure. Atul Gawande. Well, a tool, there is in fact nothing to be learned from a tool Gawande in the sense that there's nothing to be learned from the people who are in the 99th percentile are there. They can't be role models because you can't do what they do. A tool is, he does five things simultaneously. He is a professor at Harvard, a surgeon, a parent. He runs an incredibly successful nonprofit. He writes best-selling books. He's on a bunch of boards and he writes brilliant journalism for The New Yorker. He's not a, he's not a useful way. You can't look at him and say, oh, I would like to live my life the way a tool does. It's, 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 he's, a, he's a one-off. So I don't know what I, what do I learn from a tool? <laughs> uh, just to be kind of, I'm just sort of appropriately intimidated by his example, but I don't, there are journalists who I have learned a lot from, but I, I, I am incapable of extracting anything useful for myself from a tool's record. David Remnick. David is very, um, the best thing about David is, David's very blue collar. David is all about putting the work in. David values productivity, shoe leather, he, he no flash, or he likes, if you write two well-reported 10,000-word pieces, he likes you twice as much than if you write one well-reported 10,000-word piece. That is an incredibly uh, useful advantage to have uh, in an editor. He's very, very clear in what he values from his writers. Bill Simmons. Simmons is just, is infinitely interesting, almost to the point where, so I will read anything he writes, and I listen to all of his podcasts, and when I watch his TV show, he interviews all these interesting people. I'm actually not interested in what they have to say. I'm really only interested in what he has to say. It's almost a problem. The best talk show hosts are those who there's some balance between they have the gift of bringing out the best in their guest or they have the gift of getting really interesting people on their show and they kind of fade a little bit into the background. And the problem with Simmons is he's never going to have a guest who's more interesting on sports than he is. That's a sort of an extraordinary gift, I guess, for someone who's a who's a sports writer. I just I and he's surrounded by people who in that business who are not interesting at all, right? It's hard to be interesting day in day out about professional sports. If I am right about when you were at the Washington Post, Len Downey, Leonard, yes, was uh, Bradley hired me and then had retired within the year and. Leonard was the editor when I was at the Post. Leonard was the kind of epitome of the old school newspaper man. So if 
Bradley was flashy and charismatic and and Leonard was a you know when we were talking earlier about the kind of necessary formalism of traditional journalism that is Leonard by the book you do it right you don't publish anything that isn't perfectly sourced and perfectly fair and incredibly you know as someone whose tendencies are all in the opposite direction really really useful for me to spend 10 years <laughs> at the Washington Post under Leonard Downey. And by the way, while I'm on this particular rant, if Leonard Downey had been within 50 miles of the Gawker newsroom, Gawker doesn't get sued. Can I just point that out? Like this whole bullshit about the First Amendment. No, no, no. no. They didn't have a Leonard Downey there who didn't say when they ran something, thinking of running something, if you run this, you'll get sued. Leonard, crucial force in my journalistic uh, upbringing. I think something so interesting about what you just said there, though, is that it, it's such, it speaks so much to culture of places. I, I have this sort of personal rule that uh, over time, an organization will manifest both the best of its culture and its worst. And, and mm. its good will ultimately always be its bad. And, you know, the best of Gawker was its willingness to to blow past the line, its willingness to run stories other people weren't interested in or wouldn't touch. It breaks the Rob Ford stuff, the mayor of Toronto, was it? Mm-hmm. And, and does a lot of great work like that. But over time, part of that is it's outing people constantly. Like that was a big obsession of Gawkers mm-hmm. in the early years. And ultimately, of course, they really do that to the wrong people. I, in fact, I don't think it should be done at all. But even if you have a different view on that than I do. They they do it to the CFO of Condé Nast um, oh, that in a way was, that, that was, was absolutely abhorrent. And, and, you know, they ultimately the place's own culture owns it. And, you know, I think you see that in all these places, right? Like the Len Downey Washington Post would never have had that problem. It would have only had the problems that emerge from the Len Downey Washington Post. Vox will have the problems of Vox's own culture. I, I think it's mm-hmm. such a... I think one thing we tend to do is we will look at uh, the great error of a place and say, why? And and often not recognize that what was bad about it or what created the problem was also mm-hmm. what was good about it. And you can't, it's very hard to completely get rid of the yeah. mistakes without also blunting what makes organizations kind of great. Yeah. It's my absolute favorite aphorism. It's the retail aphorism. You can, something can be cheap. Something can be good and something can be fast, but it cannot be all three. It can only be two. <laughs> Pick two, right? Well, there's a version. You can do a version of that for almost any place. Well, journalism can be, you know, uh, brave, high quality, and, some, and, uh, and free of controversy, but it cannot be all three. You know, all, it cannot be all three. Pick your two. Uh, or tasteful, maybe, is the third one. <laughs> but there is like necessary, that. necessary, you know, next time you order a couch, remember that. It can't be a a great couch, a cheap couch, and come quickly. Um, It happen. You did a great piece a while back on Apple and Xerox and Xerox Park and and that era. So I don't know that Mm -hmm. you knew him, but what do you think? What did you learn studying Steve Jobs in that era? I mean, I did that piece and a subsequent piece that talked about him as a he was a tinkerer. He took other people's ideas and made them better, as opposed to blazing the trail himself. That was a really, and subsequently I've read a lot about, there's a whole literature about tinkerers and the industrial revolution, suggesting that England's, that is what England's advantage was. England did not have more geniuses. England had more tinkerers, which also feeds into all of my educational obsessions at the moment. This country is 
overwhelmingly obsessed with the 99th percentile and having the best possible 99th percentile. And I think we should be overly obsessed with the 60 through the 80th percentile or the 55 through the 85th percentile. That's where, that's our sweet spot. Um, we got to have lots and lots and lots of pretty good people as opposed to a small number of great people. That to me is the is the Steve Jobs lesson. He wasn't this brilliant innovator. He was just a guy who could take who could take these things that were out there and tweak them ten percent and turn them into. And that's what you want a lot of. That's actually there isn't a shortage of the really brilliant ideas. What there's a shortage of is the kind of scale of people, the mass of people necessary to turn works of genius into usable objects. And I don't think we have a that mass. Our mass isn't large enough. That and now we're, you know, it, into my elite school critique, which I go on about ad nauseum in in revisionist history. So that's the one thing that is really interesting to me about jobs. And just the other thing, of course, is the often uh, observed fact that he is a jerk. <laughs> and so necessarily so. And that if you want to have what he built, you have to be tolerant of jerks. I don't know whether a lot of, not all of it, but a lot of what he did was was the kind of thing that you can only get with someone who is a complete uh, monomaniacal, egotistical, narcissistic asshole. What do you think is different in a society that is oriented better towards its 60th percentile? Like in, in broad strokes, uh, I recognize it's a big question. Yeah, I think that um, uh, you have a lot less... I mean, that's sort of Germany, right? If you had to very, very simply illustrate the difference between Germany and America, it's that Germany is actually very, very interested in its 65th percentile. So what's the difference? You have much more income inequality. You have an atmosphere that for the very, very best and brightest can seem a little stifling. That's the price you pay. You know, their love of cars is really interesting along these lines. And the kind of status that a, a mechanic has in Germany is way higher than a status that a mechanic has in North America. Or the status that I was doing some work on my house and got these windows from Germany and the company sends a guy from Germany to <laughs> to to deal with the windows and make sure they're put in properly. And it was kind of like, I mean, these aren't the world's most expensive windows, but that's the ethic of the company that we're going to send this middle manager to New York. This guy who probably, I don't know what he makes. He makes probably a standard middle-class such is the status attached to that standard middle-class job, and such is the kind of uh, status attached to the making of windows, that they're going to send the guy across the ocean to make sure the windows are put in properly. I just thought, it's like, I just found that absolutely fascinating. And so the, the window guy feels legitimately that he is a valued member of the economy. And I just, I, I'm in love with that notion that you can make the maximum number of people take that level of feel genuinely and legitimately proud of what they do. Tyler Cohen. I love him. Marginal Revolution is the second website I read every morning, every morning, without fail. We were talking about him earlier, but his complete, his intellectual generosity is without peer. He reads 
in order to locate what he likes in the thing that he's reading. And that that's just that he, the only person that I think that comes close to him is um, Dwight Garner, the book review critic for the New York Times, who also reads in order to find what is pleasurable in what he's reading. That notion of being so open to what you can discover in the world of ideas is intoxicating. I mean, that's not too strong a word to attach to Marginal Revolution and to the reviews of Dwight Garner. What is the best advice you've received? I always quote this thing, which I realize is, this is going to sound really stupid, but uh, I remember reading this great line from, I, I, this is always my fallback advice, there's a John Wooden quote, be quick but never hurry, which I love. And I always have turned it around and overhead and round in my mind wondering about exactly what he meant by that, but it seems to me really profound somehow. It's funny. I have a piece of advice I heard uh, from a friend, actually, that is very similar to that, that I've always loved and I actually spend a lot of time thinking about, which is go slow to go fast. Oh, yeah. It's, I, think, I think they're getting the same thing. Uh, whatever it is, it's really, it's really profound. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it's profound. <laughs> no, I, to- I totally agree. I, there, there is something there that we were, th- this came in context of building something, of building infrastructure. And yeah. it's like for a big camping project. And, uh, um, and and this is somebody who knew a lot more about camping than I did. And I, I really like, I, I really like that. I, I do not know that I have figured out how to apply it, but mm-hmm. oftentimes when I'm feeling very rushed and frenzied and anxious, I, I try to put that back in my mind and remember that I'm probably in trying to go this fast, fucking something up that is ultimately going to slow me down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What are three books that have mattered to you that you think people should read? Oh, wow. Uh, well, I always mention The Person in the Situation, which is a book by by Nisbet and Ross from 40 years ago, which is the kind of book that got me thinking about psychology. It's a book of sort of against personality and in favor of contextual influences, environmental influences on our behavior and belief. Um it's a beautiful book. This is cheating. My mother wrote a memoir in the late 60s, um, which is one of the first adult books I ever read and which probably planted the seed in me of wanting to become a writer at some point or wanting to write because it was a very beautiful book called Brown Face, Big Master. And a kind of early, you know, before the whole tide of memoirs by young women, Joyce Gladwell, 1969. So I think my mom, pioneer in, in uh, this is very, very random, but I always love it. I go back and reread it, reread it. Elliot Cohen. Do you know Elliot Cohen, who's a military historian um, uh, I, at CSIS? Yeah, I've definitely seen his, I've definitely seen his work. I don't he know him personally. great books huh. about, he, like, I mean, he's a military wonk, but he wrote a book called Military Misfortunes, which is about the military by a military guy that's not about the military. It's just such a lovely, it's just one big, beautiful allegory about the kinds of mistakes people, high stakes mistakes decision makers make, why they make them. And um, I love, you know, as you can imagine, anyone who can write about X um, and make a much broader point about Y is someone who's a hero in my book. And that's a, I mean, I've plucked that out of many books that have influenced me, but that's a particularly beautiful example of, of how to do that um, particular journalistic feat. Malcolm Gladwell, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. 
That was Malcolm Gladwell. Thank you to him for being on the show. Everybody should listen to his new podcast, Revisionist History. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a production of Box.com and Panoply. I'll see you next week.